As you guys are here with us in the message today, I want you to be able to draw the sermon. So if, you, if, you're, if you're a kiddo today, I want to encourage you to draw a picture of the things that I'm preaching about today and share that with whoever brought you here today. Uh, I'd love to see how you interpret this message. Well, Diego Zeman gets fired twice a day. And when he fails at his job, more than just his job is at stake. You see, Diego is a human cannonball. He's one who puts himself in a cannon and gets shot out at a circus. Human cannonballs are pretty uh, adventurous kinds of people. I was reading up on Wikipedia where everything is true about human cannonballs, and it says this about the cannon. It says the cannon, uh, the cannon used does not work like a regular cannon since that would blast the human into pieces. Thank you, Captain Obvious. The impetus is provided not by gunpowder, but by either a spring or a jet of compressed air. This makes a device work more like a catapult, where the cylinder propelling the human stops at the mouth of the cannon, and voila. The record for the longest shot is 193 feet. Could you imagine that? And the speed, the fastest speed recorded is 74 miles per hour. There have been 30 reported and recorded deaths when they miss the net. Yeah, that happens. There's a sense of risk involved when you're a human cannonball. But there's something that propels you to get propelled by the catapult to go out and fly in the sky. There might be a thrill for excitement and adventure or something uh, altogether different. But for them, they are propelled into something that they enjoy. You know, periodically here at the brook, we like to take a Sunday to focus on the things that propel us to do the things that we do. We like to revisit our mission, our passion as a church family, the things that get us excited about who God is and what he's called us to. This upcoming October, we'll celebrate two years since we first opened at the Brook. And our mission and our passion hasn't wavered or changed. But one thing we need to be frequently reminded of is that there is a sense of risk with the things that we talk about. If you're new today or it's one of your first times at the Brook, I hope that you'll begin to see how we have a passion to make Jesus known in our community, in this city, in our world But I hope you also come to see that we recognize that comes with a bit of risk. It comes with some sacrifice. John Piper wrote a book titled Risk is Right. And at the back of the book, it says, either sit on the sidelines or get in the game. After all, life was no cakewalk for Jesus. And he didn't promise it would be any easier for his followers. So we shouldn't be surprised by resistance and persecution. Yet most of us play it safe. We pursue comfort. We spend ourselves to get more stuff or be entertained. We are all tempted by the idea of security, the possibility of a cozy Christianity with no hell at the end. But what kind of life is that really? It's a far cry from the adventurous and abundant life, from truly rich and really full. And it's certainly not the heights and the depths Jesus calls us to. Piper goes on to write, if our single all-embracing passion is to make much of Christ in life and in our death, and if the life that magnifies him most is the life 
of costly love, then life is risk and risk is right. To, front, to run from it is to waste your life. We don't want to waste our lives. And we have a passion to make Jesus known. I had a professor in seminary that would often ask us, it was a preaching class, and he would say, what makes you pound the table and weep? What fires you up? And I remember those words ringing in my ears. And he says, Eric, preach with power, passion, and persuasion. And the power, the passion, and persuasion, the things that make us pound the table and weep is not some energy or some excitement we we pull from within, but it's the truth that we live for. And what we want to do today is revisit the very things that make us as a church pound the table and weep with passion. We're going to take a look at the life of Jesus. And our message is going to be governed by four words that start with M. We're going to see a message, a mission, the means, and a movement. The very things that Jesus modeled for us. And by application, we, the Brook, a church here in the northwest side of Chicago, who have a passion to make him known, he's modeled for us how to go about living our lives And as we see what Jesus has done, my prayer is that you would see his majesty, his glory, his beauty, and that in your heart there might be a passion that raises that would make you pound the table and weep to be about your heavenly father's business, to take risks, to let it be costly because Jesus is worth it. We find ourselves today in the book of Luke chapter 8. If you have your Bible, would you please turn there? Luke chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. There's one in the pew in front of you. We'd love for you to have that. It's our gift to you. The Bible is God's word, and we just want you to hold this in your hand and to to own it, to read it, to live it, and ultimately to embody the scriptures. We find ourselves in Luke chapter 8. When someone has it there in the pew Bible, can you tell me what page we're on? 561. At first glance, the passage I'm about to read appears to be just a transitional paragraph. It's in the middle of a book that has some 24 chapters, and we're looking at three little verses, verses that seem like they're just transitioning from one chapter in the next to the next. But upon further review, we see there's something richer to them. And this is what God's word tells us. Luke is the writer. He was a doctor, a follower of Jesus. And he committed his life as a historian to make Jesus known through his writings. And he tells the story of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, and the growth of the church. And here in chapter 8, verse 1, Luke writes these things. He says, Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Luke begins to say, soon afterward, he went on through cities. Soon after what? Well, it's a story I shared with the children. See, Jesus had been in the house of this man named Simon and this woman, a woman of the city. 
had come here to wash his feet because she knew of her sins. She knew um, how people perceived her. and She had no self-worth. And there she wept at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus receives her in and says, you are forgiven. He brings that message of forgiveness to this woman who was without hope. And soon afterward, he went on throughout the cities and villages. He went on about with a particular goal in mind. He went on about with a message. And the message he came out was a precious gospel. It says that he proclaimed and brought the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus began to preach to the people around him a message of the kingdom of God. Now, to understand what we mean by the kingdom of God, we've got to take a, a, a kind of a look back, not, not a few years, a hundred years, thousand years. We need to take a look back, not just at creation, but even before creation, before the angels, when it was just God. Just imagine that. There was a time where it was just God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons in perfect unity with himself, self-existent, with no need of anything. God was God and in need of nothing. And at that time, he decided in his own wisdom to create. He created the heavens and the earth. And as a creator God, he is the king of his creation. He is the master of everything. But we see early on in the Bible, in the third chapter of the Bible, Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, they rebel against God by eating of the fruit that God told them not to eat. And at that moment, humanity decided that they didn't want God as their king because they chose to not obey him. They chose to say, we know better than our God, our king kind of choices you and I make all the time where we think we know better than God. I do it, you do it. There's no shame in getting that out there. There's no sense in hiding it. We constantly rebel against God, the great king of the universe who doesn't need us but has chosen in his wisdom to create us. He is the king. In fact, The scripture says in Psalm 93, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. I just love that. His stature is, is pronounced there. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. And there the psalmist is reminding us that there is a king in the heavens who's created everything, and we are underneath his authority. But in our rebellion, we've rejected him as our king. We've rejected him as our, la- our master and our Lord. And what the Bible says, because of that judgment is coming to me and to you. Because a holy God cannot be in fellowship with unholy people. Light cannot be with darkness. Perfection cannot dwell with imperfection. And our God in his justice and in his goodness is wrathful towards sin. And that's our plight because we've rebelled against the king. But the story of the Bible is a story of redemption, where this great king who is other in his love chooses to come to the earth and to make a way to heal the the, the rift that has taken place between us and him. And Jesus is the one who embodies that message. 
He is truly God come down in the flesh. And here we see that Luke says Jesus went about all the cities and villages proclaiming the good news and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus came and began to preach. He says, repent, turn away from your sin because the kingdom is here. Now, the kingdom of God is something that's, that's, uh, that's quite interesting to think through because there is a king who is God, and there are people underneath his reign, that is the church, and we are residents of God's kingdom. And God, as a good king and as a good master, guides his people. And as his people, we long for that day where God, where Jesus will return and establish his kingdom on earth, and we will dwell with him forever in the new heaven and the new earth with our king. And so what Jesus did when he first came, he's beginning to inaugurate that process. He says a new day has come. And he went through every village and city saying the kingdom is here. Turn from your wicked ways and come to me. Obey my commands. And because of that, Jesus did many, many mighty miracles. What's the good news of this kingdom? Well, the good news is that there is a king who still reigns. There is a good news that although we've rebelled against our king, that our king says, no, I still want you as my own. There is a good news that says, as Jesus says to the prostitute in the previous chapter, your sins are forgiven. That's the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not for the proud, the self-righteous, or the self-sufficient. This is why Jesus took issue with the man being so mad at this woman wiping his feet. Jesus understood this man was proud. This guy was self-sufficient. He was arrogant. He had no need for Jesus. And yet Jesus looks to the woman, and not to the man, but to the woman who was there, aware of her sin. And he says, she is the one who's forgiven. Because the kingdom of God is for the broken, is for the hurting, it's for the lost. Jesus himself said that he came to seek and save what is lost. He's come not for the healthy. Healthy people don't need a doctor. He said he's come for the sick. And this is the beauty behind the message. The good news of Jesus reaches people who were previously unreachable. He reaches people who were previously unreachable. People like you, people like me. And this is why we pound the table and weep over this message. Because it's precious to us. Because we're aware how we don't deserve God, yet he has come to us. There's a description there of the people who followed Jesus. It said the 12 were with him. That's his 12 disciples. But Paul said, uh, I'm sorry, Luke says in verse 2, And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Just imagine this woman, Mary Magdalene, oppressed by seven demons. Satan had begun to reign and rule in her life. She was a slave to the demonic. And what we see in the Bible is that when Satan enslaves us, he blinds us. He blinds our eyes to the beauty of our God. He he hardens our heart to the love of Christ. He weakens our strength and he increases our doubt. And Mary Magdalene was a woman enslaved by seven demons. And I, I begin to wonder, the word, the number seven is a number of perfection. And I wonder if it just is there to speak of the depth of her enslavement. And here is this woman, unreachable, lost beyond lost, 
beyond lost, a, a slave to the evil demonic. And yet Jesus has come to even deliver her. We're passionate about this because we know that even among us today, there's some of you who are just enslaved to all kinds of different things. When you hear the word of enslavement, you think right away of your addictions. You think of your enslavement to lust and sensuality. Maybe that you're in bondage to other people's praises, and you feel like you got to do whatever you can to get them to praise you, because without that, you're worth nothing, you feel. And you're a slave to that. Maybe you feel you're in bondage to fear, fear of failure, fear of messing up again. And these enslavements hold you down. And like Mary Magdalene, you are unreachable, at least in your own eyes. Lost beyond lost beyond lost. And the message that Jesus came to proclaim was to say, through faith in him, there is forgiveness. And so if you're here today and you just feel the weight of the garbage in your life, we pound the table and weep because we say this is not the story that needs to define you. There is a great God who came to this earth to forgive you and bring a new life. This is the precious gospel, the precious good news that the brook drives our mission because we believe it. Why do we believe it? Well, just as some of you today feel like you're a slave, there are others here today who remember what it was like to be a slave. You remember the days like Mary Magdalene when you were just bound to all kinds of junk and how Jesus came and met you there and he freed you from it. And my prayer is that you would remember that and that that would propel you back onto Jesus' mission with that message of redemption, that hope. There are some who were once in bondage among us, and there is the truth of the matter is people in our community who walk every day that you're going to see, that you go to work with, who are lost in their own sin and their failures, pleading for an answer. And what Jesus did here and what Luke teaches us is that Jesus went from city to village with a message and the message was one of forgiveness, that the king has come and he wants you to turn to him. That's the message that we see here. But with that message, there's also a mission. There's also a mission. You see, Jesus went about preaching in these various cities and villages, but he wasn't alone. Notice here how Luke says, and the 12 were with him and also some women. There were people with him. And the mission that Jesus has now given to us is to similarly bring people with us to walk with Jesus. And what the Bible calls that is discipleship. It means to be a follower of Jesus. And at the brook, our great passion is to see not only people come to know Jesus' forgiveness, but then to walk with him in surrender throughout their daily lives. It is something that we desire to see infiltrate our minds so we can know this God and infiltrate our hearts so that he begin to work in us, transforming us, and infiltrate our lives so that our lives reflect this good news. What we've been calling this in our real community gatherings is living life DNA. It's the DNA of a disciple where we discover more about who God is but as we discover, we see him transform and nurture, that's the end, nurture our hearts, and then we act, we respond, we live our lives to follow him. And that's at the heart of discipleship. And Jesus here brought the 12 disciples with him, brought these women who are, who are down and out, who have been previously enslaved, and he says, come and follow me. 
And that's what we want to do at the brook. We want to call people like you and like me and others in our community and say, come follow us as we follow Jesus. We're going to follow Jesus together because he is the one who brings hope. You know, the truth of the matter is, that's why we do the various things we do. And that's why we have things planned this summer. Uh, we've talked a lot over the past few weeks of how we're trying to engage our local park, Bell Park. We want to get to know people in our local high school, Steinmetz High School, because we want to build relationships. We want to truly pour out in love to the, these places and these people. But we ultimately want them to know the great love of Jesus. And so even as we consider our summer, Brooke family, I pray that you would be propelled because of the message and this mission that Jesus has given us to go out boldly, sacrificially, giving of yourself to bring others to Jesus. And so even this barbecue on Wednesday, I'm going to have a great time. I'm going to eat good. But I want us all, not just to eat good, but to bring people with us, bring friends and family. Say, I want you to know my church family. And we're a church family because we're followers of Jesus because he saved us. Can I tell you about him? We want people to see that Jesus is real, changing and transforming lives. The, me- the message is the precious gospel. The mission is to make disciples. And third, we see a means. We see a means. You see, the 12 disciples and these others left everything to follow Jesus. But then you start asking, how did they eat? Right? How did they pay their bills? And for Jesus and the 12 in particular, God raised up people to sacrificially give to make sure the mission and the message went out. We see there in verse 2 and 3 that there were these women, Mary Magdalene, who followed Jesus. Verse 3, and also Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others. But notice what it says about these women. They provided for them out of their means. I don't know if you know that Jesus and the disciples were bankrolled by women who sacrificially gave so that the message and mission of Jesus would go forth. That's a telling, that's a telling statement. You see, in ancient Near Eastern culture, women were not of great prominence. To mention the women in the scriptures, as the Bible does, is actually quite a, a cultural shaping kind of thing. But Jesus was okay with that. He was okay with breaking the molds. And he called people, he raised them up to give. And some of you might say, well, couldn't God just drop the money? I mean, this is the Son of God. This is God himself. Why didn't he just bring him to earth with a wad of cash? You ever think that? I do. Well, Psalm 50 says, God says, Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the fields, they're mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. You see God kind of shrinking to our level to speak on our terms, saying the fact, even if I'm hungry, I'm not going to ask you because everything's mine. Not that God gets hungry, but he's making a point that everything is his. So God, if everything is yours, just drop a treasure chest and, and fund the mission, God. Sell the cattle. Give us the money. Could not God provide? What we see here is that God did provide. And this is, this is important for us to hear, family. God provides through you. 
It is his provision. Because the cattle on a thousand hills is his. Everything is his, which means that everything you own is his. Your bank account is. Your possessions are. Your life is. Everything. And so God does provide, and not that we have to give, but we get to give. We get to participate in the God, the King, who before all the earth needed nothing, but chosen his wisdom to create and put us on this earth, even though we rebelled against him. He, in his love, still says, I want to use you to accomplish my mission. He has gifted you with resources to advance his Mission. That's something, is a, that's a privilege. That the God who needs nothing says, I want to use you to make an, eternal, uh, make an eternal difference in the people's lives. You know, at the Brook, we, we are very intentional about um, how we use our money here. If you notice, we don't have many programs at the church. And that's something that, uh, that's a part of our vision, our passion. We, we don't want to get bogged down trying to fund programs that ultimately only feed ourselves. We want to make sure that we're thinking outwardly. Yes, we want to build one another up, but we also want to stay on the mission. And so by having fewer programs, we're able to leverage our resources to make a greater influence in our community. That, that's intentional. That's by strategy. In terms of programs, we have our Brook Kids uh, every Sunday morning, and we are glad to invest in that, and we do invest in a great curriculum. We, we're glad to do that. Tuesday night, we have basketball, and the only cost is electricity. We have our real community gatherings that gather in the homes because we're a family. The building is not the church. The people are the church. And apart from that, we don't have programs. Now, that's not to say we never will, but it's to say we want to keep focused on what Jesus has called us to do. And so we want you to know that as you give sacrificially to the work to which Jesus has called us, that your sacrifice is going to the advancement of the precious gospel and his great mission of making disciples. We're committed to that. We are committed to that. It says that these women provided for them. What gets women in the first century who are of low social standing to give sacrificially to Jesus? Well, consider Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons once indwelled her. We saw the depth of her depravity, the extent of her bondage, and now in her freedom, imagine the magnitude of her gratitude. And see, it's important for us to remember where we once were in order to have the thankful hearts. I say, Jesus, propel me. Shoot me out of that cannon. I want to be about your work. God, work in me a pound a table and weep passion for getting this message out there. See, Mary Magdalene then was giving out of her gratitude. She wasn't paying Jesus back. You see, if Jesus did something for us and said, now you need to give back to me, would his grace be free? Would his love be offered freely? No. See, God doesn't work in our lives in order to get back from us. There's not a transaction that involves us giving back to God in this good news. That's why it irks me when TV preachers talk about giving to God so that he can then bless in a way that's unhealthy. 
Yes, God does bless sacrifice. I believe that. I've seen it. We've experienced it. But I don't give just to get a gift back. I give out of gratitude. The deliverance that Jesus has brought to us. And so at the brook, we always say, don't give out of compulsion. Don't feel like you need to give. If you feel like you need to give, then don't give. Give out of gratitude. Give out of sacrifice. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know, at the brook, we, we, we want to be people who are thankful. And we want that to show in the way we give of our lives and give of our resources. I know sometimes uh, when people visit churches, they'll say, you know, how come the church always talks about money? Well, this is the one of the first times we've talked about money in a long time. And that's actually to our detriment. Um, Jesus talked about money almost more than anything else. Because Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he wants us to treasure him above all. So even in the Old Testament scriptures, a command was given for God's people to give 10% of their earnings to God and his work. But in the New Testament, no such figure is given because I think God ups the ante and says, give sacrificially. He says sacrificial generosity is where it's at. And so I want us to weigh that in our hearts. Say, God, where is my treasure? God, what, what kind of passion do I feel about the message about the mission that you've called me to. And God, am I giving to the advancement of your kingdom? We strive to make that as, uh, as easy but as clear as possible. We have online giving at the brook. It's on our website. There's instructions, but there's also, a, again, a call to say, don't give unless it's out of joy and cheerfully. Um, what we strive to do, Erica and I, we actually have an automated giving. And you can do that through our website because I know I forget. If I come on a Sunday morning and say, oh, I forget. And so I just know when I get paid, I have a, a certain amount that comes out of my paycheck very first thing because I want to make sure it's a priority. I want, I want to express with my heart, we want to as a family say, God, we want to see your mission advance. And we believe it. And so let the means be the sacrificial generosity so that the pound of table and weep passion for the message and the mission will go forward. Not only do we see here a message, a mission, and means, but we also see a movement. It's a movement. You see, the gospel message throughout the, the New Testament, we see Jesus raising up disciples, and then those disciples raising up new disciples, and churches are started and planted. And what we want to see is a movement established by us here at the brook. I, I want us to hear this, family. See, God's going to make a movement through the brook, by multiplying. And so we want to multiply people. We want to multiply leaders. We want to multiply real community groups. And ultimately, we want to multiply churches. From the day we started here, we said we want to plant a church, another church. It could be the brook, but it doesn't have to be the brook. We want to raise up leaders. And once we, we pray that God would bring people who would say, I want to start a church. And that the brook would say, we want to walk with you through that. We will gladly send people with you to do that. That's why we raise up leaders. That's why we want so many people on our worship team. That's why we want so many people preaching so that we don't hoard them to ourselves, but we can say, let's start a church. And that's scary, isn't it? Sacrifice is scary. Movement takes 
risk. But if we want to sit on the sidelines and not take risks, what kind of life is that? So as a church, we want to multiply churches and leaders. We want to make sure that we're never complacent and stuck in a rut. And one of the ways that, that we're seeking to do this is actually a, is raising up a leader even among us um, who we're praying God would propel to pastor. And, uh, and Jeremy's going to be coming on this upcoming September with that very focus. Jeremy, come on up here. He doesn't know I'm doing this. No, I'm just kidding. He does. Um, you know, multiplication takes risk. I can remember like yesterday, the day that Erica and I decided to leave our previous church to, to come plant the brook. And I remember sitting down with some who came with us from the previous church. And I remember the agony that we all felt like we really love our church family. We love them. Like, like, like crying, we don't want to go, but God, we feel like you're pushing us out kind of thing. And saying, you know, if, if we don't go, God, and just stay here, then what? What of the movement? What are the disciple cycles that you made for us? What of your message and your mission? And so we said, you know, let's take a risk because we believe God was in it. And there are others who joined in that mission early on and there are others who've come along the way. And look, you're here today because God is doing a movement. But we don't want to say, let's fill all the seats, close the doors, and let's have a party because we did it. That's not it. We want to multiply people to multiply churches, multiply the mission so that the message is multiplied throughout our city. And from day one, Jeremy's been a guy that we've been trying to raise up as a leader here. And um, he's been a faithful brother and a, and a great teammate. And um, God has opened up a great opportunity for him uh, to do a pastoral residency here at the Brook with a goal in mind. And so, Jeremy, tell us about this, this pastoral residency that you're going to be starting on this August. What's it like? Who's it with? And, uh, yeah, what, 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 tell us about it. Can everybody hear me? All right, cool. Uh, well, first, let me start out by just saying uh, thank you to you, man, uh, for, for just walking with me and uh, just helping me just uh, discern God's calling on my life. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to choke up, so that, that's all I'm going to say, man. Go just choke, choke up. No, that's good. No, that, thank, thank you, though, man. You know, mm-hmm. I, you know, I love you, and thank you to the other leaders as well. Um, and, and really, thank you to you guys for, for trusting me. I really do value that. Um, Lord knows I struggle with a lot of insecurity, so I just want to say thank you, you know, in general. If, if, I, if I haven't told you that, know that I really do cherish you. Um, but in terms of the residency, um, the Lord has been gracious with allowing me to partner um, with a church planting network called the Orchard Network. Um, and they're going to be working with our church, um, one of two urban churches um, that they want to work with. It's, so I'm actually the first Latino resident. Um, yeah, represent. <laughs> and, um, and the other brother is going to be planting here, I think, in in closer to downtown. Um, but what the residency is, is similar to like what, what you would see a, doc, a doctor do, um, a doctoral resident, and where um, they're still training, but they're also functioning as a pastor. So this upcoming fall, I'm going to be doing the training with the actual church network called The Orchard, but I'm going to be functioning as a pastor here at The Brook. So, um, yeah. 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 
And uh, this, is, this is a God thing. When Brooks started, the Orchard Church, you might have heard of Colin Smith. He's on the radio sometimes. Great accent. Um, well, we got to meet Colin, and um, the Orchard lent us one of their worship leaders for a year. <laughs> you might remember Ben Sincock and his now wife, Michelle. They, they served here at the Brook for a year on loan from the Orchard. They paid Ben to work for us because they believed in this church and this church plan and what God was doing. And since then, we've, we've cultivated a relationship. And now they say, we want to start more churches. We want to have a focus on the urban. And, uh, and, and Jeremy's been somebody that they've, they've been interested in. It's been a long process. He's been in this application process since early fall with them. And we're just thanking God that it's come to fruition. And starting this August, is going to happen. Um, but let me ask you why. I mean, you know, there's a lot of other things you could be doing. Uh, why would you decide to do a pastoral residency? Um, what's, what's the big deal with that? Yeah, so I'll take it back to, to the beginning. Well, not all the way in the beginning, but when, when Jesus uh, first rescued me. When I was 17 years old, um, I had a, a pretty drastic encounter um, with, with Jesus. I, I grew up in the church, but I had a lot of church wounds, um, specifically from leadership, from my own personal family struggles. And uh, when I was 17, um, the Lord just rocked my life. Um, in a way that it was undeniable that he was he was trying to get my attention, um, and my desires began to change. I began to see Jesus clearly um, through the scriptures, and I, I began wanting to live like a, like a follower of Jesus. And um, the summer before my senior year in high school, what ended up happening was, as I was learning about the Bible, I didn't know a lot of Christians who dressed like me, talked like me. I used to dress with a lot of baggy clothes and stuff like that. Um, that's not cool no more, so don't do that. But <laughs> it, it will be again soon. It will be again, though, too. No, but um, at that time, um, there really was no, no representation for God that I knew um, in, in my city in Florida at the time. And as I was learning the Bible, I began to naturally just teach, or I would say supernaturally, teach other people the Bible, what I was learning. Um, and through that, I really started having a, a burning desire to, to, to be a leader. Um, in First Timothy, in the book of First Timothy, it talks about that, that he who desires to be an elder, it's a, it's a noble it's a noble thing. And um, I began to sense that um, years later when I came to Chicago for school or after I graduated college, um, I, I got in touch with Eric and uh, I had, I had uh, known him through, I think, your brother. And I started going to Good News Bible Church where he was a pastor. And I, I basically came up to him one day and said, hey, Eric, I've had this desire to to, to be a pastor, um, but I think that needs to be affirmed by people who are pastors and who, who can show me the ropes. Um, and that turned into, I mean, a uh, three-year process and still going. Um, and basically, you know, what, what drives me to do this residency and, and, and since I've gotten saved is a passion for the scriptures and really helping people discern their calling for the Lord. Um, the, how they will serve the Lord. And I think that's very interconnected with um, how you see the Lord. If, if the Lord has done much for you, then you want to serve him. And I, I hope to serve you guys um, in that process and seeing how, how has God specifically wired you um, to, to serve him through your vocation, through your, through your job. 
um, through your family. And uh, every pastor needs training. And I, I went to school. I got the theological training. Um, but there's, a, there's some things that school can't teach you. And this residency is going to provide that training experience for me. Um, so, That's good. Yeah. And so, yeah, this is exciting for sure. So how, how long is the residency going to be? So, so the residency is going to be 21 months, so about two years. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the prayer is that at the end of two years, um, Jeremy will be at a place where he's just able to say, okay, God, what's, what's the next step? Whether it's being a pastor, starting a new church. Uh, we, we don't know where we'll, we'll be two years from now, what, what's going to take place. But we know that two years from now he'll be ready. And uh, we're excited about that. Um, how can we walk with you? What, what, are, what are your needs um, as, as you look to starting in August? Yeah, so the most important thing that that I would ask of you in, in terms of my needs is prayer. I really do need prayer um, throughout this process. Uh, it's been a long process, a lot, and a lot of it because um, sometimes I give my own personal pushback on what God is doing, and I don't see the bigger picture. We all struggle with that, um, and I just really need some prayer um, from from my family. And then I also uh, need uh, uh, financial partners. So the, the orchard, um, along with the brook, is providing, in, in our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church of America, they're providing 72% of my salary. And I praise God for that. I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Um, but as a faith-building exercise, really, they're, they're asking me to raise $10,000 um, from my personal network. So I'm going to be sending out um, letters uh, to, to, to you guys just to let you know what God is doing in, more, in, some, in some more detail um, and just asking you if, if you would be able to pray for me um, and or support me financially for, for at least a year yeah. on, on a yeah. monthly basis. Yeah. So. yeah, and so I, I want us to hear this. So we, um, you know, we're a young church, and we don't have the means to hire Jeremy full-time. I wish we did, uh, but we don't. But as God has it, he's, again, he's put a network around us where the orchard is, is chipping in, our denomination is chipping in, and we're able to give of what we're able to give. And so to, to reach that other $10,000, he's reaching into his network asking for, for monthly donors. And, um, and the, the aim is some 40 people who are willing to give $25 a month. You'll see that in the letter. And um, so we ask this of you guys. That you continue to give sacrificially to the brook because we have expenses here in terms of our mission, but that you would seek to go above and beyond to support Jeremy, and uh, even for a one-year commitment, because we believe in what he's doing and we're excited about about God at work. So, man, I appreciate you, brother, and looking forward to this for sure. Thank you, guys. Um, before before I pray here and, and wrap it up. Um, you know, I started out saying these are the things that make us pound a table and weep. Um, when we know how much we've been forgiven, we just want to get the message of Jesus out to everybody. And so we have a great privilege to be a part of Jesus' work, to give to that work, and to see a movement take place. And so our prayer is that this summer, church family, that the brook would be a force in this community for the good news of Jesus and that through the ups and downs together we would walk, and uh, years from now we can look back and just marvel, marvel at what our God has done. And so uh, 
Pray to that end with me. Uh, in two weeks, we have a church vision luncheon. We're going to unpack some of these things with greater detail. But we want to look to Jesus, whose name we want to exalt, and take our cues from him because he's worthy of all the praise and glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this, uh, this morning. Thank you, Lord, for just the precious work of Jesus, the great king on his throne, against whom we've rebelled. And yet in your mercy, you've said, You've created a way for forgiveness through our faith and repentance and trusting in you. And so, God, I pray that uh, that that would resonate deep in our hearts. And if there are any who are today, Lord, just feeling like Mary Magdalene, stuck in enslavement to their sin, stuck to all kinds of bondage, God, I pray for their freedom today. Lord, we pray you would deliver them from that muck that holds them down. And, Lord, I pray that they would know the freedom and the joy and the redemption that comes through our precious Jesus. So, Lord, we, we lift these requests before you. We pray for Jeremy. God, we pray you would meet every financial need, that you would just bless in abundance, that you would amaze us by your provision. And ultimately, Lord, it's not so that we can brag about us, but we can brag about you. And so uh, do it, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, church family, let's rise to our feet as we sing these, this closing song. Um, and let us shout praises to God and express.